For those of you who are visiting with us, I should just say that um, explain we're doing a series on Sunday mornings called Being Human. I'm not sure that we're entirely sure that we are sometimes, but that's what we've been looking at, different aspects of what it means to be human and be a Christian. Um, the series actually got off the ground as a result of a publication I came across from Demos and the Wellcome Trust. The publication was called Better Humans and had to do with the uh, politics of uh, human enhancement and life extension. It's a very serious piece of work written by a lot of very serious scientists and academics and others. And this week has been a very interesting week with various announcements on this kind of theme. So I thought it was probably time to take the plunge and explore some aspects of what's going on and see what comments and help you can bring to this in the weeks ahead. The introduction to better humans um, talks about a number of things that they're going to explore in the rest of the text. For example, it talks about human intelligence and the fact that as measured by IQ tests when they aren't recalibrated for each generation has steadily been improving for the past 100 years. So much so that someone who scored in the top 10% in 1900 would only make it to the bottom 5% in 2000. It's not just that your children seem to be smarter than you. The bad news is they are. It talks about drugs that affect the brain. One well-known one, Ritalin, and other stimulants are now being prescribed to between 4 and 5 million school students in the United States. Many, many here as well. Others are borrowing, buying, or selling tablets and taking them to boost their concentration, especially in the run-up to exams. Does this mean they're cheating? And what about the next generation? of drugs emerging from the laboratory, which will improve our memories or overcome the need for sleep. It addresses the radical end of the enhancement spectrum, the possibility of changing the genetic makeup of our children, of inserting artificial implants into our bodies, of uploading our brains into some new kind of virtual form. It talks about the possibilities of radical life extension, of living to 150 or beyond, They describe the predictions of one Cambridge scientist who argues that there's no reason why people shouldn't eventually live until they're 1,000. It's not a prospect that appeals to everybody. The big question that this raises is, will such enhancement technologies make things better? Will we be better humans? At a deeper level, it probably raises questions that we will be forced to address about identity about personhood, about responsibility, even about democracy and about the long-term consequences of altering human nature and capabilities. One of the most commonly discussed technologies in this field is that of stem cell research. Um, The Medical Research Council says that stem cells are cells that are not yet fully developed but have the potential to form all or many of the different types of cells that make up our bodies. This means that they might offer a way to repair diseased or damaged body tissue in many human diseases, uh, such as, and many human diseases such as diabetes, Parkinson's, vision problems, and maybe even cancer. There's much debate about the growth and use of human embryos for stem cell harvesting. It sounded like science fiction ten years ago taking cells to repair, to rebuild, to regrow body organs but it's not science fiction anymore. Just this week, we heard that Sir Richard Branson has set up a new company that will provide parents with the chance to bank their child's stem cells. Now, this is the man that's famous for cell phones. 
but he's into a different kind of cells now. I suspect there must be money in it. For 1,500 quid, parents will be able to store these stem cells, which could then one day be used uh, when the child is treated with their own stem cells or to treat another person. Branson this week said, We are dealing with adult stem cells, those taken from umbilical cord blood, which is normally discarded after a child is born. Using these cells as treatments presents no ethical issues, and the benefits for patients today are widely accepted. Don say every generation sees a medical breakthrough that previously would not have been thought possible. Heart transplants, vaccines and innovative cancer treatments all would have seemed science fiction a mere generation ago. But now they're commonplace. I believe, having talked to many experts, that developments in stem cell technology will change the way we treat diseases such as heart disease or diabetes. And that's why he's getting involved with stem cell storage. This publication, Better Humans, introduced me to the world of transhumanism. It sounds odd, and it is pretty strange. One of its main proponents is Ray Kurzweil, a celebrated inventor and futurist. According to the World Transhumanist Association, the human species in its current form does not represent the end of our development, but rather a comparatively early phase. If you've ever used a scanner on your computer to scan text that you can edit, or if you've ever used software that turns scanned text into speech, then you're using this guy's inventions. OCR, as it's known, Optical Character Recognition and Text-to-Speech Synthesis, is his invention. So too are some of the best electronic keyboard instruments and technology. And when you read his CV, you discover he's won just about every award for technological innovation and has been included in the U.S. National Inventors Hall of Fame. So he's no head case. But his theories are scary. In his most recent book, The Singularity is Near, he argues that the scope for enhancement will follow an exponential curve rather than a linear trend. Ultimately, he says, we will merge with our technology. By the mid-2040s, the non-biological portion of our intelligence will be billions of times more capable than the biological portion. His thinking makes stem cell research seem tame. Bill Gates says of him, He's the best person I know at predicting the future of artificial intelligence. His intriguing new book envisions a future in which information technologies have advanced so far and fast that they enable enable humanity to transcend its biological limitations, transforming our lives in ways we can't yet imagine. Many of you have seen the film Minority Report. You can confess, we don't send people out if they've been to see film. Not all that many of you, okay? It's a film by Steven Spielberg. And it starred, of course, Tom Cruise. Yes. It's the only time in church when the answer isn't Jesus. (laughs) Spielberg pulled together a team of um, futurists to help create an idea of what society might look like in the future. And the key idea of the film was that policing was done in the future by prevention detection rather than detection after the crime. A department of pre-crime was established, and the concept was to make murder a thing of the past. Computers were able to scan the population and their brain patterns. And a person who was thinking about or was about to commit a crime was identified, apprehended and tried before the crime was committed. 
One of the good things about the Society and Minority Report was that it did away with courts and lawyers. A cheap jab, I know, but anyway. <laughs> I saw the film, and it seemed like pure fiction. But this week, the Guardian newspaper ran an article on new developments in brain scan technology. It's the result of research from the Max Planck Society for the Advancement of Science, which is based in Germany. In conjunction with University College London and Oxford University, they've been developing a technique that reads a person's intentions before they act by using brain scan technology. They give volunteers a very simple task to do. They give them two numbers and the option of adding the two numbers or subtracting the two numbers. What they were predicting to 70% accuracy was which choice the volunteer would make. Now, they weren't just watching them make the choice in the brain scan. They were predicting what choice they would make. Professor Haynes, who's involved in this, told The Guardian, these techniques are emerging and we need an ethical debate about the implications so that one day we're not surprised and overwhelmed and caught on the wrong foot by what they can do. These things are going to come to us in the next few years and we should really be prepared. Professor Colin Blakemore, a neuroscientist and director of the Medical Research Council, said, we shouldn't go overboard about the power of these techniques at the moment. But what you can be absolutely sure of is that these will continue to roll out and we will have more and more ability to probe people's intentions, minds, backgrounds, thoughts, hopes and emotions. This technology is important to people because it could also drive advances in brain control computers and machinery to boost the quality of life for disabled people. Being able to read thoughts as they arise in a person's mind could lead computers to allow people to operate email and internet using thought alone and write with word processors that can predict which word or sentence you want to type. Is it worth getting up in the morning, I wonder? The technology is expected to lead to improvements in thought-controlled wheelchairs and artificial limbs that respond when a person imagines moving. Brain-enhancing drugs, stem cell replacement therapy, leading to stem cell improvement therapy, extended lifetimes, an average age of 150 within a few decades, the merging into bodily function of computer technology, Predictive brain scanning. Many of these things are no longer the dreams of science fiction. They are in their early stages with us now. Issues of abortion and euthanasia will quickly be superseded by the issues of what it means to be human. Whether humanity has the right to fundamentally alter the experience of being human as we understand it today. What will it mean to be human? And what will it mean to be Christian in a hundred years time? Really, all I can do this morning is get you thinking. All I can do with my very limited reading of this stuff is say, we need to be thinking about these things. We need to be thinking about what basic principles we need to consider, what aspects of Christian thinking and faith will be relevant in a society in which people like Sally here will not simply read a brain scan to see if you have a tumor, but may have equipment to enable him to diagnose your behavioral intentions or indicators of your mental health. How is Sally to make sense of all of this as a radiologist? And what about all the other medics that are here? What are they to think when treatments become available to enhance human performance artificially? I don't mean a bit of nip and tuck or a shot of Botox. I mean treatments that have to do with longevity. What about all the legal types here? What issues will they be dealing with in years to come? Or will they all become pre-crime detectives? What about you and me when we go to the doctor, the psychiatrist, or for a job interview? 
And it's not just your CV they want, but your brain scan or your DNA profile to see how long you're likely to be useful or something else. Well, actually, at rock bottom, when it comes to producing better humans, Christians have something to say. We have a lot of thinking to do, but we do have something to say. Our main comment is that better humans are defined by what they choose to do rather than by what they are capable of doing. We have a strong sense of what is the right thing to choose, even if we don't always do it ourselves. And we have a strong sense about the need to understand the value of human life and its purpose. These kinds of questions were being asked in Jesus' day, but they were put differently. They didn't ask about artificial intelligence or brain drugs or being able to live to a thousand, but they did worry about these things. They did wonder how you could have a better life and be a better person and how you could live forever. Matthew chapter 19, Mark 10 and Luke 10 all record incidents of where people came to Jesus asking these kinds of questions. Let's look at the Mark chapter 10 one. You'll find the reading on page 1014 of the copies of the Bible that's in the pew. And I want to read from verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away very sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. There are at least two different people in these three sections of readings that uh, we have in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who approach Jesus and ask this question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? One is wealthy, and as you can see from Mark chapter 10, also desperate. He comes and he falls on his knees before Jesus. One is well-read and intelligent, the one in, John's, in, Luke's, in Luke's Gospel, who stands up to ask the question. The key elements of Jesus' answer are to keep the commandments summarized as loving the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself and to follow him. 
This message and these answers will hold good irrespective of scientific or technological advancement. And they'll hold good for the following reasons. They'll hold good because there's a need for honesty. I know it's hard to imagine something more quaint in the middle of the world of stem cell research, transhumanism, neurological breakthroughs, than the story of a naked man and woman innocently cavorting about a garden on an empty planet Earth, a planet devoid of human beings other than themselves. I appreciate that for many it's hard to imagine any relevance of a story that eating a piece of fruit caused their sense of nakedness to become shameful and led to death, sickness, decay and violence and horror that we still see in our world today. But it is very relevant. It's the Bible telling us about the nature of human fallenness and rebellion against God, human sinfulness. Every major research organization is shouting about the need for ethical debate and research, about the possibilities that lie ahead. Why? Because every scientific community knows that everything they discovered and develop is as much open to abuse as it is being put to good use. People don't use the language of sin or fallenness, but they understand the issues. And the challenge for the Christian church will be in helping people to understand why that danger of abuse of knowledge actually exists. It exists not because of people's socioeconomic status, but because of human fallenness. A scientist is as likely to abuse knowledge as anybody else. And the call of Jesus to these men in the Gospels is a call to humility and service of others in the light of human sinfulness. Humility before God and the service of our fellow man. So it strikes me that the Christian voice in the public arena must not only be heard to cry for controls and limits on scientific research and application if appropriate, but it must also be heard explaining in simple biblical terms why such controls are necessary. Christians need to be challenging the people who are reshaping the future with the question, what kind of life are you trying to perpetuate and why? If people could live a thousand years, as some are arguing, it means that for some people there could be ten times as much opportunity to do harm as they already have. What's the point in a bitter, selfish, bullying individual being able to live for a thousand years? What's the point in totalitarian, murderous dictators being able to live for a thousand years? Do scientists think that being able to live longer will stamp out the tendency to do evil? Well, we all know there's no, no evidence for that. In fact, we can be sure that it is some of the most evil who will bully their way to the greatest enhancements, the best medical care and the longest lives and trample on the heads of everybody else to get there. The Bible tells us a story about our human sinfulness and the quest for eternal life and the knowledge that there is something wrong with us. The Bible tells us the honest story about our need to put God first in our lives and have the humility to do so and the humility to be committed to serving our neighbor as ourselves. And that message will always be relevant. There's the need for redemption. We may live longer. We may be healthier. We may work in tandem with computers but we will only be better humans when something fundamental to our nature is addressed. And that is the acknowledgement of our sinfulness and the need for transformation, the need for redemption. 
I've been really challenged about this during the week in a number of ways, partly because of the Christianity Explained course and the talk that I had to do the other evening, partly because of a conversation I had with a friend in which we were discussing if you could be a Christian or take the Christian paradigm or worldview without having to believe in the historicity of Jesus and the nature of his death. Then you can't. You can see many parallels in the human condition and in human life in the story of the Bible. You can get a good explanation for suffering and you can get a good explanation for why the world is the way it is. But without Jesus and without his death and his resurrection, there is no redemption. There is no hope. There is no basis for the belief in transformation as far as Christians are concerned. And that's why Jesus says to people to come and follow him. Their lives need to be transformed, not merely in terms of how they think about each other and about themselves, but in how they choose to live. And that's why John in his gospel, who talks a very great deal about this concept of eternal life, a life that is of a different quality, a life that is eternal, a life that is of a different quality even now. And John, in many passages in his gospel, addresses this and and core to all of those passages, like, for example, the ones in John chapter 3, which you're probably familiar with. The core to them all is this call to believe on the one who was sent. So the call to follow Jesus is part of the outworking of the need for redemption. And humanity is always going to have that need, whatever its technological or biological capability. But there is also the need for a model. Who are we to take as our model in the brave new world? Scientists, however brilliant they are, aren't setting themselves up as the models for everyone to follow. Politicians, however charismatic, aren't setting themselves up as a world model for humanity, at least not the same ones. Yet we all need to know what we should look like. We need to know what a better human looks like while we work at making humans better in other ways and use the God-given gifts and abilities that we have to do so. So where do you go? Well, the Christian message is clear. You go to Jesus. Because in Jesus you see righteousness in action. In Jesus you see justice personified. In Jesus you see service to fellow man exemplified beyond anything else that we know in human history. In Jesus you see the love of the Creator demonstrated. The Bible offers the rationale of working towards a better future. But it has nothing to do with physical ability and nothing to do with global trade and nothing to do with all of these kinds of things. It has to do with a longing for righteousness, a passion to see justice exercised, a passion to see beauty without it being ruined, a passion to see relationships without abuse and breakdown, a passion to see the planet renewed, unpolluted and unspoiled, a passion to see a world lit by the glory of the holiness of God, All of which we see in Jesus and anticipate in the concept of eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth. There's much thinking that we will have to do about ethical issues. There's no question about that. And as Christians we need to begin to engage with this because this is moving faster than we're thinking. But at the heart, at the core of the Christian gospel and the Christian message, there are issues there that will continue to be the issues that need to be addressed, whatever you may be capable of by simply thinking and moving the, the, making a computer move on your behalf. And there are these things, the need for honesty 
about our sinfulness, our human fallenness, our rebellious nature, the need for redemption, the need for a transformation that has taken place somewhere outside of ourselves because of our inability to do that redeeming for ourselves and by ourselves. The need for a model. A model to know what a better human looks like. Not in terms of capability, but in terms of choice and direction. Does the future frighten you? This week I signed the petition on the Downing Street website protesting against the proposed road charging scheme in which every journey of every car will be tracked by the government by satellite and charged by the mile. You should sign it too. Sorry, shouldn't use the pulpit for that. The technology is here to do it. It was science fiction a couple of decades ago. The idea that you'd have a little thing fitted in your car and a satellite would track it and be able to tell exactly to within what? Two or three feet? Where you came from, where you went to, how far you travelled and send you a bill for the privilege. I don't think it's right. Not because I don't want to pay my road tax. I'm happy to pay my road tax. I think I always have. If that sounds like a David Cameron statement, don't worry about it. I have always paid my road tax. But I don't trust any government with that level of capacity to pry into human beings' lives. And I don't care what the intention is. Because we are all full. There need to be checks and balances and controls to the extent to which a government or any organization holds and can use and utilize information on human beings. Does the future frighten you? Well, it shouldn't. Don't let it frighten you. Engage with it. Engage with the gifts that God has given us in science and technology and knowledge. Let's not be afraid of these things that are possible. But go out not railing against the changes that are coming. Go out with the biblical message that makes sense of who we are as human beings. Go out with a strong sense of taking with you into this brave new world that lies ahead. The call to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Go out with the call to follow Jesus. That message isn't ever going to change. Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for the gifts that you've given to us. We've been thinking this morning of the gift of life and being so wonderfully and dramatically represented to us and having Joshua with us here this morning. We think of the many other gifts you give to us, not least the gifts of intelligence and knowledge and understanding. We thank you that in creating us, you knew exactly what we would become capable of, both in terms of our rebellion against you, but also in terms of our taking the resources and gifts that you've given us and using them for good and for your glory. We thank you for everything that's possible today that wasn't possible in the past that helps people's lives. For all the treatments that we receive and are being pioneered that change the quality of our lives. Thank you for all the technology which enables us to discover so much more about your world, both in the 
the macro scale of the universe and on the micro scale of all the technology that's developed at the smallest, smallest conceptual idea. But Lord, as we say thank you for all of these things, we come also asking for your grace and your help. We ask, Father, that you will give us the right perspective on the use of knowledge, that we will not become arrogant in our hearts as a consequence of what we, then, what we come to know, but rather will be inspired to praise you all the more, that we will not increase in our sense, arrogant sense of self-sufficiency, but that we will trust you all the more and seek to follow you all the more. We pray, our Father, that you would help not just us as Christians as we think about all of this, but those who make the decisions. We pray for government. We pray that they will be enabled to make good and right decisions about how our lives should be ordered and how they should be monitored. We pray that there will be good and right and truthful safeguards in place that will protect and care for people rather than use, manipulate and abuse them. We pray for those who hold the wealth in our world, much of it in the hands of a few, either individuals or corporations, who have the power and the technology to research and develop new concepts, new medicines, new ideas, new technologies. We pray that where there is a temptation to use these things for selfish gain or for perverse reasons, that you would restrain them, that you would put it into the hearts of many to use such ability and such resources genuinely for the good of the world and we thank you for those Christians and non-Christians who model that for us in our contemporary society we pray that you will raise up many more and we pray our Father that in our own lives you will help us as we are faced in the generation that lies ahead with new and different choices and options that were never there for our forefathers help us not to become self-reliant or reliant on the technology that we develop but to be able to articulate in fresh and new and authentic ways our confidence and our trust in you. And grant, Lord, that in whatever path we walk in this life, we might walk it following after Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.